0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. And today it is Martin Luther King Day. This is a federal holiday, one set aside to honor the legacy of the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the advances that he made in the civil rights movement. We are going to talk about this with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a distinguished a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. He joins us periodically to give a philosopher's take on news events. Jack, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure uh, to be here and on such a auspicious occasion.
0: We have talked before we've done an entire Philosophical Currents episode about the importance of holidays, but I think we should start there. Why is it important to make something like an observance of Martin Luther King a federal holiday?
1: I think it's important for a variety of reasons. The first is to give people an excuse to talk and think about it because we're all busy. We all have other things on our minds. And sometimes we take for granted the things that are even the most important, right? I mean, think about how many times you want to talk to your partner your spouse or your kids about something and then you just get distracted. So the first thing is just to put it on the table. The second thing is to recognize... Who is part of the pantheon of people we want to honor? Who are our founders? Who are our leaders? Who are our major influences? And when you get a holiday named after you, it's an endorsement that not only is the message that the person is Espousing something that we want to endorse, but also that there was something special and meaningful about the person themselves and they deserve recognition. It's sort of, for lack of a better uh, analogy, it's sort of a very large abstract tombstone, right? It's a place to mm. visit, it's a place to recognize, it's a place to meditate, and it's a place to communicate with those who have passed.
0: Well, let's talk about this, uh, the the word that you used right away, an excuse, an excuse to talk about it. It's a day that we set aside. And I want to talk about uh, the approach that higher ed takes. Uh, When I was in college, um, I went to two different colleges, and MSUM and Concordia had different approaches and I was going to them at the same time, so it was a little bit annoying for me as a college student, but as an adult, I recognized these approaches as very different ways of addressing this same topic. MSUM always had the day off. Concordia always had classes that day, but they also had a lot of programming, a lot of content. They brought in speakers who uh, were of local and national renown to address this Topic. Let's talk about those two different approaches, the advantages and disadvantages of each.
1: Well, as you were asking the question, I reflected on that answer as well. And I think it's important to recognize that. The word excuse is largely for people who aren't African-American. You know, Mm -hmm. African-Americans probably think about Martin Luther King all the time. They think about civil rights all the time. They think about injustice and justice and equal opportunity and all these things because there's such a differential in opportunities still, differentials in economic status, and so... I don't want to make the, the, the sort of the white perspective or, you know, I guess the Asian American and Hispanic perspective the default. But at the same time, different schools will have different populations. And I don't know what the ethnic and racial um, breakup is of MSUM or of Concordia, but, you know, MSUM is a public school it attracts people from across the state i'm sure it has done a strong recruitment for from, from african americans um, and other minorities uh, in minneapolis and and uh, st paul and I suspect there's a larger diversity there, in which case the kind of recognition and celebration that they're going to have is going to be representative of that population that maybe wants to do things on their own or wants the affirmation that Martin Luther King is, again, part of that pantheon, part of someone who's worth recognizing. Concordia is a private school. And so they have less pressure to recognize the national holidays. They have less expectations to to be in sync with the the federal government. And because it's a private school, the demographics are probably going to be different. And so maybe uh, Concordia felt that it is in their best interest to have, for lack of a better term, a captive audience and say, no, no, we want the students to be here because we think that Our students will be better served to have a structured conversation, to have uh, lots of different uh, exposure to things that maybe they wouldn't think about, you know. So on the one hand, there's that expectation that. We take the day off because we want to recognize the importance of this person to the community, and then the other option is we 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 include this day because what we want is to communicate the ideas, the theories, and the opportunity for people to ask questions and have them answered. It's a different kind of discourse. It's a different kind of interaction, and Concordia and MSUM are very very are situated uh, differently. And of course for for those people who don't know MSUM is 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 Moorhead State, uh, Minnesota State University Moorhead just just uh, you know abbreviations. <laughs>
0: Thanks for doing my job for me. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Jack in that answer, uh, you said, you know, we want to be careful not to have this be presented as just the default white perspective, the default Hispanic perspective, but I and I'm not even really sure how how to phrase this question without sounding weird, um, but I have to admit when I hear the term civil rights, I think about the advancement of Black people. I don't ever think about civil rights in terms of Indigenous people, in terms of Hispanic, in terms of. Um, Asian in terms of Latinx. And, and I'm thinking about this, uh, you know, last week we had a conversation on Main Street honoring the late Clyde Belcourt, who was a co-founder of the American Indian Movement, and he was touted as a civil rights leader. So I guess uh, m- my question, uh, for want of better phrasing here, is why is that so common to think about civil rights rights? only of just the black and white perspective and not all of these other marginalized groups
1: so uh forgive me if i take a little bit of a deep dive here because there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff in that question and the first thing to acknowledge is that one of the reasons why this perspective, this notion of an excuse, this white perspective is a default is because of, again, the demographics we're in. Look, you and I, I mean, I don't know your full background, but you and I are both white and we're having mm-hmm. this conversation. And I'm Eastern European descent. Right. My family came Northern through Ellis European Island in me. the in the early right uh, 20th century. And so, you know, there are to white people having the conversation. Now, one of the reasons is that the in-house philosopher for Prairie Public happens to be white, and there are no African-American philosophers at the University of North Dakota. And so the structure sets it up to have the, not the easy way, but the way of least resistance and the way of of, of spontaneity to, to, to have this white personnel. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think we have to acknowledge it and move on. At the same time, Uh, You use the term Latinx, right, to to refer Mm -hmm. to to Latino, Latina population. And that itself is controversial because the Spanish language doesn't have an X in it in that same form. And so there are a lot of folks of Hispanic descent Mm. who find Latinx really problematic because, again, it's the white perspective. Again, it's the Latin specifically and um, Anglo-American, Anglo-Saxon perspective. Now, that's a whole different controversy. But the point is that there is a sort of default because of the people who are in power, the people who are public intellectuals. My favorite quote about this subject actually comes from the comedian Chris Rock. And I, I talk about this all the time in my classes. And he says, the civil rights uh, movement didn't advance black people. The civil rights movement advanced white people. Hmm. Uh, he said, I happen to be lucky enough to live uh, with the nicest white people in history. <laughs> and and there's something really powerful about that he says it funnier and more pithy right because he gets he's chris rock but but um yeah right but but there's something really important powerful about that because the white population denied the black population rights the white population disrespected the black population the white population limited the black population's opportunity so what martin luther king was able to do was convince the white population to let go of some power. And it wasn't an easy task and it wasn't uh, a, a, a a completely nonviolent task. And, and there's still all sorts of conflicts and all sorts of inequalities that exist. But I think it's really important to see that the legitimacy here of the holiday has to acknowledge that the people who did the injustice are also the people who are responsible for the justice now again and this is this is why i apologize for the deep dive there's a little more which is unfortunately and i think that this is a really sad fact of history. Unfortunately, we think in terms of opposition and black is the opposite of white. And because black is the opposite Mm. of white, we often think of black people as the opposite of white people. And we think of uh, people of Hispanic descent or people of Asian descent as somehow in between because there's a color spectrum, right? And completely black and completely white, whatever that, you know, in in colors, not people, uh, are on either side of the spectrum. And... And I, I am really sorry for what I'm about to say, but, you know, yellow and brown and red, those are in between the spectrum. Now, those are shorthand, you know, horrible ways to describe people's skin. I'm not white. I'm, um, I'm, I'm what my wife calls baby pig pink. Um, and, uh, you know, um, but... Uh, um, But we have this sense of a continuity of people and a continuity of skin tone and a continuity of of cultures. And for historical reasons that are largely unjustified, we think of black and white as opposition. So Civil Rights Day is going to focus very much on that opposition. And, of course, Martin Luther King uh, was largely concerned with African American population and getting um, expanding civil rights for African Americans, and so it would be kind of insulting and 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 marginalizing uh, of of Black Americans to say, well, you know, yes, we're talking about Martin Luther King, but what about Asians? What about Hispanics? Um, that's important to acknowledge, but certainly the civil rights movement for equal rights for African-Americans was important enough that we can have at least one whole day to talk about it.
0: So many things I want to pick apart uh, in that answer. But I, you know, I love that you called me out on saying Latinx because I didn't even know that that was a potentially problematic word to use. And I included it because in your answer before that, you know, you said a Hispanic perspective and a white perspective. And I was sort of thinking, well, Hispanic, well, that means, you know, from a Spanish speaking background. So you could grow up in, uh, you know, Spain and be Hispanic and have no real first hand uh, lived experience about what life is actually like in you know Guatemala in central america in latin america and so there was the move to start including that to separate that from hispanic um so l- let's talk about Using all of these different terms and for someone in the dominant culture who is trying to keep up with the words and finding this balance between inclusivity, multiple perspectives, but not getting lost in just making sure that we're saying every single possible term.
1: This is a problem that plagues the American left right now, in that there is a a, a subpopulation that is so focused on words and terminology yeah. that they can't get past uh, a a thought you know a mistake or lack of information or what have you you know the 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 point about. Latinx being representative of Latin America is tremendously important because none of these populations, and this includes white folks and black folks and uh, Native Americans, and uh, they're not monolithic, right? People are different from one another. People have different experiences. And you're right. The experience in Spain is very, very different than the experience in Guatemala. In the American movements to recognize ethnicity, the Hispanic population, and I'm not entirely sure why I chose that term other than habit— chose different terms at different periods. There was a Chicano for a while. Mm. And so each generation chooses the term that works for them, right? The term African-American is the latest in, you know, when people were named by white folks, right? There was the N-word. And then there was colored people and that's really important in just a second uh then there was you know negroes uh which was the preferred term and then there was afro-american and then black and then african american the largest civil rights organization in the united states the naacp is still the national association for the advancement of colored people but Mm -hmm. we don't use the term colored people right we use the term people of color but people of color are you know all ethnicities, again, right, you know, white being the default and color being the the variation. And so if, you know, we want to call people what they want to be called and we want to be polite and we want to be respectful. But we also want people to be generous and listen to our ideas and listen to our intent, especially because a lot of people with bad intent can hide behind the quote-unquote good terminology and use that to be deceitful. So I guess the whole point of this is language is such a political process that the words we choose are themselves a, uh, a product of a discussion, a product of a debate, and a product of history. One of the great um, moments in civil rights culture was the development of the phrase black is beautiful. Alex Haley has Malcolm X talk about this in his autobiography, which is that black was always associated with being ugly, right? White was pure, black was evil. There are a lot of cultures, South Asian culture and very much some subgroups in the black culture that see light skin as prettier than dark skin. Spike Lee's movie School Days is very, very much about this, and when he released it, he was accused by uh, many leaders of, of, of airing out the black community's dirty laundry. But it's really important to put this out, because the legacy of beauty associated with whiteness, and and and, and purity, and enlightenment with light, and darkness, and evil, and deceit with darkness and shadows, that has plagued the word black and the community. And so when when people wore buttons or, or espoused the slogan, black is beautiful, what they were saying is not just, you know, we look at us, but also let's reject this idea that one skin color is more beautiful than the other or uglier than the other. Let's look at each skin color and each person and find the beauty and Just the idea of asserting that a black person and particularly a black woman could be beautiful was itself almost revolutionary. And all of that stuff is tied in uh, and, and, and hard to parse. And that's why we're spending so much time talking about it.
0: Well, you just used phrases like a black woman and the word beautiful. And I want to talk about, uh, you know, it was recently announced that Ida B. Wells, a journalist who exposed the horrors of lynching, is being commemorated in Barbie doll form. And I don't know that we need to get into is becoming a Barbie doll actually, (laughs) uh, you know, commemoration here. Uh, Maya Angelou being represented on the quarter. Do you feel like as a philosopher that these are advancements?
1: They're absolutely advancements, and they're advancements for a variety of reasons, one of which is, again, that official recognition. And another is the acknowledgement of what uh, scholars will call intersectionality, right? You're not just black. Uh, you're a, a black man or woman or transgender or non-binary, if if. if, if you identify as such you're not just you know i said i was of eastern european descent i'm not just white you know i'm jewish and there's a whole debate as to whether being jewish is white and that's a whole other conversation but you know polish russian ukrainian you know not to mention middle class you know blah 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 there's this intersection of all these identities and what all of these the the coins and and the statues and the holidays do is find a way to represent the different intersectionalities of the black population. It's not just black men, it's black women, it's not just educated black women, it's, it's black women from this background or that background. And what we're doing ultimately is recognizing their deeds and acknowledging the deeds that had been made invisible because of their color, right? Or because of their sex. Ida B. Wells did this amazing thing and it should have been celebrated at the time but it wasn't let me give a, a an analogous example that that is is a it's not quite far afield, but it's but it's 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 another example. Billie Holiday has a wonderful song, unbelievably moving song called "Strange Fruit," um, and one of the lines is "Strange fruit hanging from a poplar tree." And the song is about lynching, and the song is about. Um, and one of the lines is, uh, I'm doing this from memory, but one of the lines is "Black bodies swinging in the breeze," and it's this heart-wrenching and i encourage everyone to listen to billy Holiday's uh, one of the many versions of strange fruit it's it's heart-wrenching it's beautiful it's gorgeous and there's a whole debate and there's a really interesting book about it there's a whole debate as to quote how much she knew about the song that she was singing right there was billy Holiday. uh came from a very poor background. She was abused. She worked as a prostitute for a long time. And there was just a default assumption that because of that, she was stupid. Because of that, she was uh, unable to contemplate her own song. She is, in my mind, the single greatest jazz singer in history, one of the great American vocalists and voices, even though she had a range of thirteen notes, she could emote and she could express emotions and ideas and concepts with 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 just this unbelievable ability to express herself. And the idea that she would sing Strange Fruit and not know what she was talking about was absurd. But because she was who she was and because she mm-hmm came from where she came from, That the the automatic position was, oh, she can't know what she was talking about. And that's what these things are trying to acknowledge, the coins and the holidays and the statues and all these other things. That's what they're trying to acknowledge. They're trying to acknowledge that we have found all of these ways to marginalize, to disenfranchise, to make invisible these tremendous achievements, and we have to find a way to pull those out of the the, the periphery and make them the focus of our attention.
0: We're visiting with Jack Russell Weinstein on this Martin Luther King Day, a conversation about the philosophy behind the civil rights movement. And Jack, you mentioned... Malcolm X in this conversation. And at the very beginning, talking about uh, Martin Luther King, you said the word endorsement. This is an endorsement of this person's ideals if we give them a national holiday. And I want to talk about this role of the moderate versus the radical. Uh, and and I guess the question is, why does Martin Luther King have a holiday but Malcolm X doesn't?
1: Well, I'll say first off that I'm a huge Malcolm X fan. Uh, I should show you someday, or we could post it online, a photo of me when I was the editor of my school newspaper in college, and the whole cast, the, the whole you know staff is at my desk, and there's a massive Malcolm X poster behind me. Um, I am tremendously moved by him uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which was... When I read Alex Haley's um, autobiography, Malcolm X, Malcolm X was killed and he was killed in this place called the Audubon Ballroom. Uh, He was assassinated. And when I got to that part and they talked about the Audubon Ballroom, I was completely blown away because the Audubon Ballroom was four blocks from my house. I Mm -hmm. grew up right by his, you know his place of death. And it made history incredibly real to me. The other thing about Malcolm X, this is incredibly important, is that he changed his mind very powerfully right at the end of his life. He spent much of his life, uh, much of his activist life, talking about how white people were inherently evil and black people were the victims of all white people. And he was a segregationist in a certain sense, and certainly an economic segregationist. He, he, He was the someone who really advocated for black people keeping money inside black communities. But then he went to Mecca and this is going to be really important because he was Muslim. He, uh, he went to Mecca and he described the process of sleeping next to people of every color and Muslims of every color and every shade. And he realized that it wasn't white people, that it was the American system, that it was the structures that were wrong. And he was, and the first thing he did when he came to America, right, he got off the plane coming from Mecca and he held a press conference and he said, I was wrong. Here Mm. is what I now have learned. And that as a philosopher, but also as a person is unbelievably meaningful and unbelievably powerful. Now with that said, he uh, advocated for violence uh, uh, resistance by any means necessary is the famous phrase. He was a Muslim. Uh, He was a revolutionary. He refused to talk to the white population and spent his time talking to the black population. And so all of those things combined make him more dangerous and more oppositional to the United States government than Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, by Malcolm X's standard, was a moderate. Martin Luther King was a Baptist, so he was a Christian. Martin Luther King was very good at, at, at politicking and, and, and engaging with, with white populations. And, and Martin Luther King talked to the white population as much as he talked to the black population, his famous letter from Birmingham jail um, isn't a letter to African-American civil rights uh, workers. The letter from Birmingham jail is a letter to preachers and moderate preachers, both black and white moderate preachers who keep saying, look, um, don't make waves. You know, well, we just got to be patient. And so. In line with America's self-image, both of a a history that has a very strong Christian uh, uh, component, uh, a a country that identifies, again, with the white as the default, a country that seeks, as any country does, stability and continuity and that values lobbying and legislative change rather than radical revolutionary change, Martin Luther King is much more palpable and and much less dangerous. Also, and this is not unimportant— Martin Luther uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated by a white man James Earl Ray uh, whether he worked alone or not is a whole other conversation Malcolm X was assassinated by fellow black Muslims because there was or at least is alleged to be there's been some uh, well, people still pr- pretty much are, are, are convinced that it was under Louis Farrakhan's order but anyway neither, nonetheless, he was he was, that was a conversation with myself I apologize to everybody Um Malcolm X was assassinated by people within his cadre group association because there was a power struggle in the American black Muslim movement. And and I need to say very specifically that the black Muslim movement is the name that they chose. It's not what I'm saying because uh, Islam is, again, a tremendously diverse religion. And so Mm -hmm. since... Martin Luther King was assassinated by a white man and Malcolm X was assassinated by black men who were associated with his group and his and his and the people he associated with. There is more of a responsibility for atonement and recognition amongst the American government and amongst the white population because Martin Luther King, as far as I understand it, was assassinated for pursuing civil rights, and Malcolm X was assassinated for internal political
0: reasons. Hmm. I wonder, adding on to this line of questioning, Rosa Parks is the person who comes to mind when we think about the, you know, leading up to the to the bus boycotts, she was a woman who refused to give up her seat to a white woman. But Claudette Coleman did this months before Rosa Parks did. She was a teenager, she was not married, and she was visibly pregnant at the time of not giving up her seat. Let's talk about uh, this idea again of who gets raised up in a movement. And I know that you've just addressed a lot of that. But when we start to add on these other layers of who becomes acceptable, and then we start to add in things like their sexuality.
1: The Rosa Parks example is hugely instructive and really, really important. Not simply because it shows one kind of person over another, but because the story we tell of Rosa Parks is largely inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Um, We tell the story as if Rosa Parks was a woman who was coming home from work, who got tired of it all and spontaneously refused to stand and move to the other part of the bus, which is what happened to... Two other women, actually, before her. Rosa Parks was an activist, and Rosa Parks was a uh, a coordinated attempt by lots of people. The bus route was planned, the timing was planned, the publicity was planned. Now, they chose Rosa Parks because she was a churchgoer she was um respectable she was clean as opposed to the previous women who were you know as as you said an unmarried mother and all of that kind of stuff ironically there's a wonderful there's three pages in taylor branch's biography uh of martin luther king parting the waters it's a three series three book pulitzer prize winning series um talking about the details of who they chose and why to represent. But if you don't want to, this is going to sound funny, but if you don't want to read that, the best depiction I've ever seen in recent times is actually an episode of <laughs> Doctor Who in the last season called Rosa, where they go back in time and they're with Rosa Parks. And it illustrates all... All sorts of things about the Rosa Parks story that we don't know. For example, and I talk to my students about this as well, we think of Rosa Parks as getting on the bus or African-Americans as getting on the bus, paying their money and going to the back of the uh, of the bus. But that's not what, what happened. What happened was an African-American would go on the bus They'd put their money in in the slot for the bus. They'd have to walk out of the bus, walk to the back door and get in the back door because they weren't allowed to walk through the white section. And 50 percent of the time, the bus would leave. It wouldn't wait for them. It would steal their money and leave. So there was just a level of insult and abuse and theft that was endemic in the situation. Also, and this is really well shown in the Doctor Who episode. The, the, the black section would change in size. So there was a, a, a sign that says, you know, whites only and colored uh, only. And the more white people that would get on the bus, the further back they would move the sign. So not only was the, the black population limited by the back, uh, you know, uh, exiled to the back of the bus and through the back door, but the longer they rode, the less space there was. And so... We tell these stories so simplistically as if they're spontaneous because it's much more dangerous to think about it as an organized and subtle and nuanced situation. And so the short answer to to your question, which is a very long answer, but the short answer is Rosa Parks gets the recognition because the civil rights workers recognized that she was the best poster child for civil rights, and they intentionally set it up for her to get that kind of attention.
0: There was recently, and I'm not remembering off the top of my head which state, but a, one of the southern states where a governor and a lieutenant governor elect. Um, the, the lieutenant governor was a black woman and ran partly on this platform that We have come too far in racial recognition in this country. And that to me seems like a very controversial statement to say, and I'm sure there is much more nuance uh, than what I just said on the air. But what I want to talk about is who gets to decide that.
1: I, I guess it depends what you mean by too far or what the person means by too far. I don't think in a democracy you can move too far in equality. I don't think in a democracy you can move too far in recognition of individuals, of recognition in groups that have been marginalized. So if that's what this person means, it's absurd on his face. If what this person means is we are a factionalized community that over-identifies racially, that over-identifies uh, what you're allowed to do, what clothes you're allowed to wear, what hairstyle you're allowed to wear, um, what you know, who's allowed to do rap music and who isn't, then there's a conversation to be had about that. Uh, I, myself, am, am, am skeptical of the idea of cultural appropriation. That's a conversation I have with my students all the time. I don't think segregation is ever... The proper solution. Um, But at the same time, the reason why we've moved so far along this path is to remedy an enforcement of racial segregation that the white largely Christian population has enforced in this country uh, since before we were a country, since the the, the slave trade. If you look at um, the history of writings about uh, Africans, what you'll see is before uh, Christopher Columbus, all of the descriptions of Africans from Europe talked about how they were different and how they were exotic, but they never talked about Africans as inferior. But once you got into the slave trade, and once you got from Christopher Columbus on, the language changed. And Africans became subhuman, animalistic, uh, incompetent, needed to be dominated, all these other things. And that was part of the justification of slavery. There became this whole I'll call it industry, but that's not the right word, this whole industry of justifying slavery through religious tax, through historical tax, through social pressure, through through political structures. And so what we are trying to do now is negate that legacy, is to get past this language of opposition, this language of inferiority, this language of, of colonialism, and, you know, Sometimes that may go too far in one direction and we have to figure it out. But look, we all do that, right? We all spend the first month of 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 the year going to the gym five days a week. This is this is when I'm gonna this is the year I'm gonna get in shape, and then it diminishes to three days a week, and then it diminishes to, to one. And then we have to figure out what's right for us. We are at a point of tremendous social change. a a point a a historical point of backlash of instability race is still the single dominant discourse in our country and there are going to be missteps all along the way so it really depends what too far means and whether too far is a holistic claim which doesn't make any sense or too far is you know in this instance in that instance in something else and It also depends on what this person intended by saying it. Meaning, was this a racist dog whistle? Was this a way of getting uh, very conservative white supremacist voters? to sign on? Or is this person saying, look, we need to have this conversation? Because those are two very, very different things. And one, the first, white supremacy and racism is unacceptable. And the other, we need to have a conversation. Well, I'm a philosopher. I think all conversations can be fruitful.
0: Well, we could have a whole conversation about using absolutes, speaking in absolutes specific right. to news headlines, <laughs> um, but I do want to to end this conversation today by bringing it into uh, the context of recent news, and that is uh, in, the, in the past couple of years, the removal of confederate statues and some are saying absolutely get rid of this let's stop holding up people who were committing atrocities other people are saying let's leave it up but provide some context and have like a federal holiday an excuse to talk about these as a philosopher, where are you on this spectrum? I suspect I know the answer, but I am going to let you answer anyway. <laughs> uh, I,
1: I, if this was if this was a visual medium, I'd, I'd share the "Why Not Both?" meme. <laughs> um, I think that this is this is a case by case basis. I think that there are plenty of instances where statues should be taken down and names should be stricken from buildings, but I think there are also instances where it would be infinitely more helpful to leave it up and then have additional material with signs that said, you know, this person did this and this person believed this. And here's an exact quote of this person talking about African-Americans. And not to, um, I I don't want to get into the conversation, but I'll use this as an example. Um, Ralph Ingolstadt, who the University of North Dakota arena is named after, was known to associate with Nazis, had very anti-Semitic ideas. This was super controversial, was very anti-Native American uh, recognition, all sorts of stuff. I don't want to get into the controversy. But on the one hand, I can see the case for changing the name of the arena. But I would actually much rather leave the name and have a big display and a big exhibit talking about all the things he said and why it was wrong. This is a teaching institution. And we should talk about the nuances in history, and we should pe- talk about the fact that sometimes people who we don't like or sometimes who, people who we think were immoral were also successful and also contributed. Uh, Henry Ford, tremendously important person in American history, also a, a, a raging anti-Semite who published his own versions of, of, of anti-Semitic texts and distributed thousands and thousands of copies. People aren't simple. George Washington wasn't simple. Martin Luther King wasn't simple. You know, one shouldn't speak ill of, of someone on a holiday. But, you know, Martin Luther King has lots of affairs. He, is, mm-hmm. he, he allegedly uh, plagiarized part of his doctoral dissertation. Martin Luther King was a real human being. And at the heart of this is a, is, is a really important question about teaching and about the American experience. And it's as follows. Do we teach our influencers as if they were heroes, as if they were larger in life, beyond our capabilities, uh, perfect in every way, or do we teach them as flawed? Do we teach them as complicated? Do we teach them as making mistakes as well as having successes? The benefit of the first one is we need heroes. We need ideals. We need something to strive for. But if Thomas Jefferson, if Martin Luther King, if if George Washington are perfect in every way, then school kids are never going to aim to be like them. They're going to be dismissed. So we need heroes, but we also need accessible ideals. We also need accessible goals. And if we say, look, this person said these things, but they changed. Malcolm X was a revolutionary. He espoused violence, but he also admitted when he was wrong These are things that school kids, these are things that all of us can strive for. So at the heart of all of this is this great philosophical question, how do we teach about our forebears? How do we teach about the people we admire? Do we teach them as ideals and unattainable and almost religious and divine figures, or do we teach them as real people who struggled every day trying to achieve something that was super hard? I'm inclined to the second, but... Teaching age-appropriate stories means that sometimes we teach it one way to second graders, and then we teach it later a different way to fifth graders. And kids are smart. They can figure it out.
0: In this idea of teaching about these people, so often, of course, we're teaching about them long after uh, they are not alive anymore is there anybody that you are teaching your students about right now who is very much alive very much active in the civil rights movement as it's unfolding <laughs>
1: that, that that's that's a really good question and you've stopped, stopped me in my tracks um uh i'm a political philosopher and i also teach philosophy of law and so while a lot of people who I teach are dead, a lot of people whom I teach are uh, minor figures, academics, uh, public intellectuals, Why radio I've chosen a lot of why radio uh, people for specifically this reason. Taylor Branch, the author of the Martin Luther King biography trilogy, I had him on the show, but we actually didn't talk about Martin Luther King. We talked about the NCAA and racial politics in the NCAA. I think the thing that is most relevant is I teach a short essay on critical race theory. Now, you and I have already had a conversation about critical race theory, and we don't have to get into it, but I teach this in Philosophy of Law. It's one of 20 essays I teach, and I teach it because critical race theory started as a legal theory, and I teach it almost entirely for this one passage, and the one passage says as follows. It says... When the Civil Rights uh, Act of 1964 was enacted or, or other civil rights legislation was passed, it changed the laws, but it didn't change the people. The same people whose job it was to stop whites and blacks from marrying, to deny, people, uh, to deny black people permits in City Hall, who, who, who made the racist rules, they were the same people who had the job the next day. They were the same people who had spent their lifetime, quote-unquote, being racist, and then all of a sudden were ordered, quote-unquote, to not be racist. It doesn't work that way. And, I th- and, and I, until I read that essay, I, I didn't process that. I didn't process that the law changed, but the people didn't, and the procedures didn't, and the structures didn't. And I think that's what we have to talk about now. I think what we have to talk about is the interaction between the people and the structures, the way that people affect structures and the way that structures affect people. And this interplay That will allow us to talk about the great heroes. It will also allow us to talk about the the, the people who are alive and the people who are fighting for legislation and trying to figure it out. This is a battle that we're all a part of. This is a battle of self-awareness. This is a battle of recognizing that we as human beings are imperfect and we always have a lot to learn. And every one of us who looks in the mirror, who self-reflects, who takes the opportunity to listen to this discussion and reconsider their thoughts. Every one of us who seriously considers these issues and wants to do the right thing and searches for the right thing, every one of us is a hero. And that's the most important thing for me to transfer to my students, that it is their own identity, their own experience, their own critical thinking that is the key to reaching pure justice in the future And we should recognize the individual and regular everyday struggle, not the heroic, uh, out of this world, after the fact, we're rewarding success struggle. Every day is hard and changing our opinions is hard. And that's what Martin Luther King Day is designed to inspire.
0: Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota and host of Why, Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Ashley. I loved every minute of it.